Hey, it's Sunny Days. I am the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Listen, I am a podcast her, okay, H-E-R, an activist, a thought leader, pin pusher, and lover of poodles. And I'm Lisa Davis, MPH. I am a lover of social justice, healthy living, dogs, and I love being the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Now is the time for honest, unfiltered conversations, for authentic voices and their stories, and for connection. Join us as we confront the moment head on with this podcast. It is passionate. It is real as lives behind the headlines. Active allyship, it's more than a hashtag. And listen, it goes beyond the likes, the retweets, and the hashtags, making space for the vital dialogue necessary for racial justice. And now on to the show. I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Unfortunately, my wonderful co-host Sunny is away today. You know, when Sunny and I co-created this show, we knew that it was going to be really difficult. When you're talking about evil and hate, which is racism, and we knew there would be times where it's just so heavy, but yet we have to talk about it and white people need to flip and be uncomfortable and learn the truth. And so much of our history has been whitewashed and or they're just not teaching us things at all. So I'm really honored or we're really honored to have on the show the wonderful David Zucchino. Uh, he is the author of Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of 1898 and the Rise of White Supremacy. David Zucchino is a contributing writer for the New York Times. He has covered wars and civil conflicts in more than three dozen countries and is a four-time Pulitzer Prize finalist for his reporting in Iraq, Lebanon, Africa, and inner city Philadelphia. Zucchino was a Pulitzer Prize for his dispatches from apartheid South Africa. He is the author of Thunder Run and Myth of the Welfare Queen. David, so honored to have you on Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Ah, it's great to be with you, Lisa. Thanks for having me on. It is so great. Okay, so the first question Sunny always asks, but I will ask for her, is what were you marinated in? Um, I hope respect for other people, respect for other cultures. Um, I've spent my whole life as a foreign correspondent, um, showing up usually on the worst day of people's lives and busting in and asking all kind of questions. And I really think it's important uh, to treat everyone, particularly people who are in traumatic situations with um, decency and respect um, and try to put myself in their position uh, and just be honest with them about what I'm doing and try to report honestly and, and fairly. Now, were these values shaped in your childhood by your family? I think so. My parents were very, very um, thought it was important to treat people with respect. And they, they showed by example, they treated everyone with, with respect and with, with dignity. That's wonderful. Well, I want to jump into this incredible book again, Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of 1898 and the Rise of White Supremacy. So you're looking at the post-Reconstruction era in the American South, and it was just brutal. I mean, just brutal for African-Americans. And there was this exception of this port city in, in Wilmington, North Carolina in the 1890s. It was a thriving black middle class, and there were police officers and aldermen and magistrates and electorates. But then, of course, the flipping white supremacists had to end this. Uh, just, I'm completely just like, okay, this is reminding me so much of the insurrection and this 
the gall, the 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 privilege, the the way the, the the white supremacists feel like they can just take and do whatever the flip they want, right? So take us back to this horrible coup of 1898 and I never heard about it which is just sickening because my parents would try to go the extra mile and my grandparents were teaching me history they knew right. I wasn't learning especially about you know <laughs> African Americans and I do the same for my daughter but yet somehow until I read your book I didn't know about this and it really pissed me off I've never heard of it either I went to high school and college in North Carolina and took a lot of history wow. courses it was never mentioned once I had no idea I didn't learn about it until 1998 when the city of Wilmington had a centennial observation I read about it in the paper and I was shocked that I could be so ignorant of such an important piece of American history and and secondly that's something this horrible could happen on American soil so that is why I decided to write the the book but essentially what happened was um white populists who were poor white farmers broke from the Democratic Party in the early 1890s, and the Democratic Party was the party of white supremacy then, and they aligned with Republicans who were the party of Lincoln then and the party of black suffrage and took over the state legislature in North Carolina and then won in an election, uh, took over the city government of Wilmington with this multiracial coalition and three of the 10 aldermen were black and 10 of the 26 policemen and so on. And you mentioned all the other black men in important positions. And this was anathema to the white supremacists who had been ruling Wilmington for generations. And they began to plot over a period of months, uh, a coup uh, to overthrow the government and to murder as many black people as they could. And then to drive the rest of the black people out of the city and they succeeded remarkably on November 10th, 1898. They sent 2000 armed white men into the streets uh, to shoot down any black men they saw. And they also had the assistance of two state militias that were in Wilmington. And these were the national guard of the day, ostensibly reporting to the governor in Raleigh, who was a Republican, uh, but they were commanded and made up completely of white supremacists. So they were the militia of the white supremacist movement. And the merchants bought each one of them uh, a machine gun. Uh, one of the newest guns, uh, well, they called it a rapid fire gun, which was a new thing at the time. And so they had all this firepower and they unleashed it and killed 60 black men, at least 60 black men in the streets. Uh, at gunpoint, they forced the city council, the mayor, and the police chief to resign, and then they appointed the leaders of the mob, mayor, police chief, and city councilman. And at the same time, they started a what they called a banishment campaign. Uh, the black leaders that they didn't kill uh, were put on trains at gunpoint and told to leave Wilmington and never came, come back, and not one of them ever came back, and they took the so-called white traitors. These were white Republicans who had joined the multiracial government. They put them on trains and said, don't ever come back or we kill you. Not one of them ever came back. At the same time, they drove um, more than 2,000 black people from the city never to return. Wilmington was 56% black in 1898. Today, it's 18% black. So they destroyed the black community and particularly a thriving black middle class that had existed and a black professional class, doctors, lawyers and professors. All these people uh, were either murdered or um, run out of town. So there's really almost nothing left of the middle class community in, in Wilmington to this day. You know, one of the things that was so scary because it's happening today is the fake news yeah. air quotes and it, it just when i was reading just looking at all the different lies and the things that they would say about 
black people right. and just how insane they were. They called it the white supremacy campaign. I mean, that's the name they gave it. And part of the campaign was to use newspapers. One of the leaders was uh, the publisher of the News and Observer in Raleigh, which was the most powerful, widely read paper in the state at the time. And it's still an important paper today. And he started a disinformation campaign, campaign on two fronts. One, uh, the, uh, they, they created the so-called black beast rapist, and they told whites that black men were coming to rape your women and steal your jobs. And the second lie was that uh, black people in office were incompetent, ignorant, uh, uneducated, unintelligent, were not capable of, of running office. And, and then thirdly, that, that black men were not intelligent enough or capable enough uh, to be given the right to vote, that they would abuse it so they should not have the right to vote. So those were the lies that were pounded in to the white population through newspapers um, and through rallies. Um, they sent white speakers out through the countryside to incite white people um, to attack black men to keep them from voting. And they also organized a campaign in Wilmington for all the white employers to fire any black worker who registered to vote. So dozens of black workers were fired just for registering to vote. And then on election day, of course, they beat and threatened and intimidated any black man who tried to go to the polls. And at the same time, uh, they burst into the counting, the polls where they would count the votes in the evening and started fires and diversions and took out all the Republican votes and stuffed them with phony Democratic votes. So they, quote, won the election, but they actually stole it. And then two later, two days later, because the municipal government wasn't up for the election until the next year, they decided not to wait that long. And they just overthrew the municipal government and appointed themselves uh, to take charge of the city. You know, our show is called Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. And we like allies who actually do something and, and put themselves on the line. And you write about a woman named Jane Cronley. If you can tell us about her. One of my favorite characters in the book, Jane Cronley, and she was a um, uh, member of, of, the, of the gentry, a well-to-do white woman who was completely horrified by what was going on. And she kept a diary that summer and fall. Um, related the events, which was very rare to have a point of view of a white progressive, particularly a woman. Uh, so that was very helpful, the book, to, to see what happened through through her eyes. And she talked about how ashamed and appalled she was uh, to be a white person in North Carolina at that time. And her brother uh, was drafted into the uh, the so-called Red Shirts, which was the, was the militia of the white supremacists. It was an outgrowth of the can, and he was forced to go out into the streets and patrol and look for black men to kill, uh, reluctantly. Um, so she talked about how difficult that was um, for their family. So it was just nice to have that viewpoint. Right. Uh, and it's just a small part of the book, but she's an example of one white person who tried to do the right thing, but was was helpless. It's just so incredibly depressing. Tell us, tell us about Alex. It was Alex Man Manley. Yeah, uh, he was an incredible character. Um, he was um, the the grandson of a white governor. Um, he could so called he could have quote passed as white because if you see photos, he looks pretty much like a white man. He decided to live his life as a proud black man. Uh, he came to Wilmington and started uh, the Daily Record, which he claimed was the only black daily in the country. And it might have been one of only a couple. I mean, it was a daily newspaper in a town. Like, and it had a lot of influence with the black community. And he really challenged the white power structure 
Um, and he wrote an editorial in the summer of 1898, which essentially said two things that uh, most black men who were lynched for allegedly raping white women were, in fact, their consensual lovers, that white women were attracted to black men. And secondly, for generations, white men had been raping black women with impunity. And as you can imagine, this just set the town on fire. And the truth usually does. People don't want to hear it. Just shocked, though, and it was reprinted across the South to wow. uh, motivate and incite whites against blacks, and it really worked. Uh, the red shirts, the, the, this militia of the white supremacists, wanted to lynch him that day. And to show you how calculated and premeditated the coup was, this was in August, the elections in November. They said, no, wait, we can use this uh, as a political weapon. And we promise you, uh, just before the election, you can lynch Alex Manley and burn his newspaper down. Well, they did burn his newspaper down, but a white friend warned Manley what was going to happen. And a couple of days before the election, he managed to sneak out of town basically dressed as a white man. He put on a suit and a hat. And um, the the minister for the Wilmington Light Infantry, which was the, the militia, knew the password. You needed a password to get through all these white checkpoints and gave him the password and $25 in gold coins and said, you know, you got to leave now. And he managed to get out of town safely. But they did burn his newspaper down. Oh, God. You know, it was interesting to hear about his uh, grandson, yeah. He never he never wanted to talk about it. And they right. didn't talk about it until I think 2006. Mm -hmm. It was just so incredibly painful. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to talk with him. He was such an interesting interview. He's 86 years old. He's the grandson. Uh, his name is Lewin Manley. He was a, a dentist um, in Atlanta, a very successful, uh, you know, middle class person. Um, didn't know anything about it. He knew his grandfather, Alex, up until he was six or seven years old. So oh, he wow. remembered him and remembered having this sense of that he was carrying this burden around, um, this tragic burden, and he just kind of lived under this cloud, and he never knew why. And then he knew his grandmother, Alex's wife, up until his 20s and could not get anything out of her could not get anything, anything from his father, who was Alex's son. No one would tell him anything about what happened. He did not know about it until 2006 when a state commission issued a report. And, and he was hurt, confused, pained. Um, he just had this jumble of emotions and mostly this rage and anger at the whites who destroyed his grandfather's life and destroyed the black community in Wilmington. So he's still quite angry about it, and I don't blame him. Oh, of course. I mean, it's it's just horrific. You know, one of my favorite shows is Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, yeah. and it was so great that he that you were in a clip. Uh, and, you know, the, the show is basically about history and right. about how we really aren't talking about what really happened and this whole move in this country for so many people who are like, we just want to be proud of America and we don't really, yeah. let's just be proud and, you know, whatever. I'm like, no, that's not the way it, that's not the way it works. And what do you think we can do? Well, support efforts in Congress right now to pass legislation to keep Republicans from uh, passing all these voter suppression laws and yes. taking power from the county election commissions and putting it in the hands of politicians in the state legislatures. They're going to be able in 2024 to determine who wins the presidency, regardless of who votes, because they have the power to choose their own electors. And that's frightening. Plus, there are all these attempts 
in North Carolina and everywhere else to make it as difficult as possible for African-Americans in particular to vote. So what people can do is get out and fight these efforts, uh, you know, be like Stacey Abrams, you know. Oh, she's so amazing. She's my hero. Support her. Uh, and there are efforts in every state to try to fight this. Uh, but the, the main battle is in Congress in, in getting this past the Republicans um, to pass legislation that would outlaw this because we used to have the Voting Rights Act and it was gutted by the Republican Supreme Court. And that opened the way for all these voter suppression laws because um, it took away the preclearance requirement that uh, governments who had, uh, mostly in the South, who had discriminated against black voters were required to get Justice Department approval for any changes. And John Roberts said, well, there's no more racism. Um, this this Voting Rights Act, Act works so well, we don't need it anymore, which was just twisted logic. But it, anyway, that opened the door to all these voter suppression attempts that we're, we're seeing today across the country. I don't know. There's hundreds. I can't. I lost count. But people need to get out and fight that because it's going to guarantee uh, that white conservatives win the election if they get away with it. You know, I wanted to ask you, did you know about the the Tulsa massacre? Mm -hmm. Tulsa massacre, I think I learned about that in school, in college. Really? Yeah, yeah. which was was ironic since I was in North Carolina. I went to UNC Chapel Hill. I found in, in researching this book that there is this really deep strain of racism and white supremacy that has been in this country since well before 1898 up until today, but Donald Trump unleashed it. It was yep. always there, but he brought it to the service and made it okay to be racist, okay to hate people, okay to have grievances. And January 6th was like a replay of 1898 in that it was based, both were based on big lies of a stolen election. In 1898, one of the motivators for uh, white voters was claims that the election that put blacks and whites in power was fraudulent, that that black men had brought children to vote, that dead people were voting, that they weren't capable of voting. Uh, and, And secondly, just the disinformation around both 1898 and, and January 6th. And, and third, what really struck me that theme throughout the, the book of 1898 was that violence and vigilantism is patriotism if it's in the cause of protecting our way of life. And Donald Trump, not in so many words, said the same thing. He said, you're not going to get um, your country back unless you fight for it. And what he meant was that your country is being overrun by replacement theory, by people of color who aren't real Americans, who are taking over your country, and you got to go out and fight for it. And even if violence is required, uh, it's justified if it's in the name of patriotism. And both those themes were so strong through both those events. So nothing's really changed. I mean, the, the violence is at a different level. I mean, nobody was murdering black people in the streets, but the, the themes and the motivations are exactly the same. I know there's so much work to do. And what you've done is absolutely incredible. You know, I mentioned before we started taping that if I could have somebody over for dinner, a celebrity, I would say, uh, you know, John Oliver, but I think you, <laughs> you're a Pulitzer Prize winner, for goodness sakes. All right. Tell us all the ways we can find you and your wonderful book, Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Cue of 1898 and the Rise of White Supremacy. Uh, you can go on Grove Atlantic, who's the publisher. They have a website. I'm on Twitter at, at David Zucchino. I'm in an Instagram, David Zucchino. I'm on Facebook. So you can find me anywhere. Thank you so much. 
much. It meant a lot to have you on the show. Thank you, Lisa. It was great talking to you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends and family. This is really important, and we want to get the word out. So glad that you're listening. Please keep coming back. Also, follow us on Instagram at activeallyship.podcast. Thank you so much.